Okay, well, let's go ahead and uh, have start with a word of prayer. Got some old faces back that were, have been gone for a couple of weeks, and now some faces that are gone. So, uh, why don't you, Ed, why don't you uh, open us, well, <laughs> previous, <laughs> previous faces. <laughs> How do I get myself out of this? No, you were right. <laughs> <laughs> All is good. Okay. Father, we're just thankful that we could be here tonight to study your word and to learn more about how you manage uh, the affairs of men over the, over the course of, uh, of our lives and, and this world, this earth and world. We're just thankful for your love and your grace and mercy as you, as you do that. Help us to have open minds as we uh, try to learn more about that. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so if you last missed the last two weeks, you've missed all of this. And uh, we don't have time to review the entire thing. Uh, but uh, let me just give you the really brief version uh, if you if you haven't missed. We started out by saying that the, uh, the overarching plan for the universe is God's glory in establishing his kingdom. But then we said that the kingdom of God is not a monolithic thing. Uh, we actually have in the in the uh, universe two spheres. There is the civil sphere in which things go on irrespective of redemption. You've got kings established by God. Uh, you've got laws. You've got conscience. Uh, you've got human government. You've got the nations, you've got Caesar. These are things, you know, even the Dominion Mandate, really, that's where it starts. These are things that, that all people, by virtue of the fact that they are part of the image of God, are to do in every age. And irrespective of whether they're believers or unbelievers. This is the expectation that God has. Okay? That's what we call the civil sphere. Okay? And uh, we said that God is the ruler over this sphere. And we find, for instance, that there are statements that God is God rules in the heavens. He rules over all. Okay, and uh, and so this 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 kingdom is eternal and comprehensive. It's it's everything. But then we said that there is beneath this what I'm going to call the redemptive sphere, and I'm hesitant to call it a kingdom per se, because there are uh, the the kingdom is too technical a term to use. Uh, the whole way through. But we find here that there is a redemptive sphere uh, in which God is calling out a people for himself. Uh, it starts here uh, with the first giving of the gospel to Adam and Eve in the garden after the fall. It's further established with Abraham, or the seed uh, that's going to be the solution to mankind is, is outlined further. Moses brings us along even further. David still further until Christ arrives here, and then we find uh, that that the church is distinct from Caesar, and of course this is what we said is, is in my mind, the critical distinction that we have here between dispensationalism and other models of theology. We have a distinction between Caesar and Christ, or human government and the church. They each have their own independent spheres. Uh, and uh, even though there's overlapping, and we are citizens of both kingdoms in some sense, citizens of both spheres, we operate disparately. We, we, don't, we don't act as church members when we go to the polls, and, when, and the government really has no hand in what the church does. So there's a separation of church and state. And, and again, another reason why dispensationalism and Baptists have tended to go together uh, for, for that reason, because of the, the emphasis there. And, and, and we said that's a big distinction here between the previous dispensation or the theocracy when everything was bound up in, in one place. The, 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 again, the, 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 the taxes in the form of tithe all went to one pot, and they went to support the, the king, the priests, the, uh, the temple, the, the armies, whatever was necessary. It all went into one pot, and it was all administered by this, basically the same group of people. That's what it's going to end up being like again in the kingdom, the millennial kingdom. But for now, we've got, we've got distinction. And, and that's probably where the, the uh, practical dis distinctions of 
dispensationalism and, say, Reformed or Covenant theology come out most cleanly. Uh, we see a very narrow mission for the church where those particularly of the post-millennialist uh, persuasion say, we're still trying to do all of those things as the church, whereas our understanding here is that the church's primary mission, uh, we could even possibly go so far as to say the sole mission of the church towards those who are without our walls is that of evangelism. Okay? Our goal is not so much to, to, to feed or educate or heal uh, the uh, the nations and the people of the area, although there may be some activity in those spheres, that's not the purpose of the church. That's the purpose of Caesar. And we are part of that political organization as well. We're part of a we're part of the we're part of a democratic Republican society in which we should be concerned about the the fate of the city, you know, the the, the civic sphere. And so we should not be, it's not as though we're unconcerned about those things, but we recognize that there, there are two different spheres of operation in which those things are taking place. The church is there to fulfill the Great Commission. Caesar is there effectively to, to fulfill the Great Commandment, you know, to, uh, to love neighbor as self, okay, if, I, if I can put it that way in very general terms. Okay. So that's, that's, where we, that's where we ended up, and we came here last time to our last, the last, our seventh um, dispensation, and that is the one that is the millennium. And we say here that this is in some sense a continuation of this, uh, but it's, it's not really so much a continuation as sort of a, a scrapping and redoing of what should have been happening here, if I can put it that way. Yeah, question. You mentioned a few minutes ago that we are not the end, that church never will go to hold. How can we cannot act? We act as Christians. Okay? We act as we act as humans in the image of God first, and we do act as Christians. And so I think it is appropriate, you know, we can talk about this. It would be appropriate for uh, your pastor or, or a teacher to stand up and say, these are the things that Christians should be concerned about. Because the Bible says, as good citizens, we should be concerned about these things in society. Justice, uh, the uh, sanctity of life, uh, the, the preservation of marriage. You know, these, are, these, are, these are biblical principles that are at stake at the polls. And we should be able to say, even from the pulpit, these are the things that we should be concerned about when we go to the polls. But we don't, we don't go to the polls as a church. We go as individual humans, and we are supposed to be the best possible humans we can be, the best possible citizens, but we are not acting so much as church members as we are as model citizens. If that makes sense? Somewhat. And so, and so, and so perhaps some, some, a practical manifestation of that is that I, I should be careful with what I said. It's not as though the church is going to be putting out all those little signs along the front of the, uh, along the sidewalk there, vote for A candidate or B candidate or C candidate, or even vote no or vote yes on, on this or that issue, because it's not really the church's role to intrude into the state. And, and, and that's supposed to be mutual. It, by not intruding into the state, then we can expect, we can at least hope for similar treatment from them. They're not going to intrude on us. Okay. So we are part of the state, in some sense, because we're voters. We're part of the church, but we have we have different hats on. We're we're acting we're we're as one one writer says, we're dual citizens. And there's no conflict between the two, but we act differently as 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 citizens of either sphere. Okay. I don't know. Okay, so um, what we came to then was the kingdom, and this is where we sort of ended up last time. We had walked through it, and we had gotten to this textbook. I think it's on what, 28, is that right, 27? 28. 28. And uh, we're, we're looking at this millennium, and we're seeing something very odd, and, particular, and, and the, the specific thing we're seeing that's odd is that there is a... a uh, 
renewal of the sacrificial system. This is strange to us because here in the theocracy we see sacrifices going on and uh, you know daily, and then we come to the cross, and it would seem that all sacrifices are done right there. Christ has fulfilled the law, right? He's completed the terms of the law, and so there is no sacrifice for sin other than him. Okay, And so we would scratch our heads and say, why would we come back to these sacrifices here in the millennium? It seems like a reversal of the, of the theological progress that we've seen from day one to day last. Okay? And we started talking about that, and, and, and uh, uh, let's, let's review what we've talked about. I think we went through the first point here. Uh, and, and again, this is, one of the, uh, this is one of the greatest stumbling points for a lot of folks uh, who reject the dispensational system, because it would appear then that we're saying that there is salvation through sacrifice here that's resumed here. And our point here tonight is to say neither one is true. Sacrifice saved no one in the Old Testament. How do we know that? Hebrews 10, 4, and 5. Bingo. Okay. Because by the blood of bulls and goats shall no flesh be, be saved. There, there, there's, there's no salvation in the sacrifice of bulls and goats. Which means we re- immediately have to go back to the drawing board and say, well then what were they sacrificing for if these, if these sacrifices didn't help them get saved? Okay. Well, and, and, and we said, if we, have, if we come to this, this t- the table thinking people got saved by sacrifice in the Old Testament, we've got some major problems, okay? Uh, we won't deal with the, sec- the salvation section here uh, immediately. We'll, we'll, it's actually close to the end of the semester that we'll, we'll talk about that. But salvation in every age is by grace through faith in the promises of God. Now, and the reason I say the promises of God is because the promises of God are not completely seen back here. Remember back here, it was just a seed. And uh, you scratch your head and say, what, does, what exactly does that mean? In fact, uh, there, is a, there is a suggestion here that even Eve, when she named her first son, was at least hinting at the possibility that her first son was her salvation. Uh, you know, I have received a child, the Lord, and uh, and uh, read uh, Walt Kaiser's discussion of that. It's a pretty interesting discussion. Uh, this the the suggestion here is that she actually was believing the promise, and she believing it wrongly, but she was believing the promise. There's going to be a seed. I'm going to produce the solution to the sin problem, and she thinks Cain is the solution. She's terribly wrong, but she has faith in the promise of God. Okay. Now, as we move along here, the promise starts to take a little bit better shape, and we see it funneling down through Abraham, uh, through David. Uh, we find particularly in the book of Isaiah that this seed takes on personal form. Uh, there's a suffering servant that we sort of get the idea is not just an ordinary human, but is also God. In fact, he's named that. He shall be called Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The government will be upon his shoulders. And you say, okay, this... And, and, and the shape of the promise is, 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 is starting to take shape. Okay. Now, it takes complete shape here at the cross. Okay. But how do people get saved in every age? By faith in the, in the promise of God to supply a solution to the sin problem. Now, today, we have to have that specificity in, in our expression of faith because we have that, that data. But ultimately, salvation is the same. So, having said all that, we come back to this question, why the sacrifices then? Okay? If the sacrifices aren't there to save us, what are they there for? And in answering that question we're going to be able to answer the question, why do they come back? Okay? We said, and barring 
significantly from John Whitcomb's article that's available online. If you uh, hope to, if you if you wish, you can uh, read up on that. There's actually an updated uh, article, same article with a few, uh, mostly minor updates, uh, but you can pick that up online. Um, so, what are the purposes of the sacrifices? Well, I say first of all that the primary function of the Old Testament sacrifices was theocratic. That is, they actually, and and this is the language that's used, they actually expiated guilt. They removed sin. They removed guilt. They propitiated God's wrath. That is, they satisfied God's wrath so he is no longer angry. Affected peace with the individual and his covenant God and community. That's reconciliation, which is symbolized by the fact that uh, the priest would often eat the meal, depending on what sacrifice you're talking about. The, the priest would actually eat the meal with the offerer to, to in, in, in demonstration of the fact that God and man are now at peace and we can eat together a meal. This was not to say that these sacrifices contributed to the salvation of Old Testament saints, but they did this. One, satisfied temporal wrath incurred in the eyes of the law. Okay, So if we, if we, can, if we can make the comparison, it would be as though we came, we committed a crime, we had one going last week, right? Uh, we had a, we had, we had, a, we had, don't want to, I want to hear the end of that story. But uh, uh, we were, there was a, there was a crime committed. You go and stand before the uh, the judge, and he says, "You've got to pay a fine, or you have to do so many hours of community service, or perhaps you have to spend so many months in prison." Okay. Once once those things are completed, what happens? Well. You've paid your debt to society, and you go free. Okay. Now, there may be some lingering uh, concerns that attach themselves to you because you have a record there, but the fact is you've paid your debt to society. In the eyes of the law, you're, you, you're paid up. Okay. Same thing would have been true for the sacrifices in the, in the Old Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, there was a, there is a, there is a, a, a whole system of, of fines and penalties but there was no prison per se. Uh, but there was there were fines, there were there were penalties, there were some things for which there was no sacrifice that could be made. These people were put to death. But these sacrifices were always added on to these penalties. Okay, so that you had to pay a fine and offer a sacrifice. You had to make reparations and offer a sacrifice. Okay, and so on and so forth. Okay. So what did the sacrifices do? These sacrifices symbolically paid one's debt to the society, the community. So they were communitarian. Within the theocracy, these sacrifices were necessary to effect peace within the theocracy. It didn't do anything to our relationship before God as God. But it did something for their relationship before God as king. In fact, we, uh, we pointed out this passage here in Hebrews 9.13 that these sacrifices could be effective even if they weren't offered in faith. Okay? The same thing is true today, right? You know, they say, okay, you, you've, got, you've got a fine, you owe $200. And you walk up to the counter and you slam it down and say, I shouldn't have to pay this, but I know that uh, you're going to hound me until I do, and so even though I think you're wrong and you're a bunch of jerks, I'm going to pay this fine. In pennies. And they're going to take it, and they're going to say, um, I'm sorry you feel this way, um, but you, you've paid your debt. Go in peace. <laughs> okay? And so you, you, didn't, you didn't offer that with a right-heart attitude, if I can put that way, but you paid your debt. And, and Hebrews 9 actually says that the sacrifices could be offered apart from a heart of faith and still perform their function in that way. Now, it's, there's, as we're going to see, there's more than one function of the sacrifices, and some of them had to be offered in faith in order to have any effectiveness, but this one didn't. Okay, These benefits were, as Whitcomb specified, temporal, finite, external, and legal. They were not, he says, eternal, infinite, internal, and soteriological. So the sacrifices didn't save you. They didn't make you right with God but they made you right with your community. Okay? 
So what happened was personally and immediately significant, not simply symbolic or prophetic. So it's not just that these sacrifices are pointing forward to Christ. We're going to see that that is a function of the, of the sacrifices, but that's not the only function of these sacrifices. Okay? They were significant. They actually, I mean, that, and that's why we see all the, these, these terms that are used. They, they, they expiate. They remove. They remove sin. They remove guilt. They atone or satisfy the wrath of God. Okay? Not in an ultimate sense, but in a, in a theocratic sense within the eyes of the community. And so, if that is the case, Old Testament sacrifices stood as covenant markers that facilitated fellowship within the elect community, much as the rite of communion or Lord's Supper in the New Testament economy. The sacrifices, especially the peace offering, enabled the participant to maintain theocratic fellowship with God within the elect community. And there's nothing in this purpose that would preclude the reinstatement of the sacrificial system in the millennium. In the millennium, there will still be people who are sinning. There will still be people who will steal an ox, or perhaps not an ox, maybe a car. Okay, and so what will the penalty be? Well, we aren't privy to all the details, but there will probably be some sort of fine or reparations that will be made, and offer a sacrifice in order to be right with the theocratic community. Won't save you, won't contribute at all, one whit to your salvation, because sacrifices don't do that. But they can effect peace within the community. Okay, again, there, there's, there's no dragging people away and putting them in prison in order for time to heal all wounds. Uh, that's, that's not how it worked in the Old Testament nor in the Millennium. Uh, there was a, an immediate solution and, and part, of it, part, of the, part of the solution includes then sacrifices. Yeah. I heard uh, teaching one time, maybe it was too simplistic, uh, that the, the sacrifice of both goats in the Old Testament was just a covering over sin yes. for the people. But now we're talking about personal Christ came. But during the, the, the millennial period, how then are we looking at the sacrifices okay. then? I, I, I personally don't take that view of atonement. In fact, the word atonement, the Hebrew word kapher is, is the word that's used. It actually, there's some debate as to what the word means. Okay, uh, There's an Arabic root, which means to cover. There's an Aramaic root that means to remove, okay, uh, or to, or, well, expunge. we'll call it, I'm sorry? Expunge. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah ex, ex, expunge or remove, okay, and so um, there's a lot of debate as to, and, and some would say, okay, it's just a covering, I call that the landfill view of sacrifices, you know, they just keep covering over and over and over, but it gets higher and higher and higher until Christ comes and just wipes away the whole landfill, right? But ultimately, that doesn't, that doesn't, one, it doesn't fit some of the words that are used. They talk about removal, completely removal and and peace with God. Uh, Just because the trash is under a layer of dirt doesn't mean that it's not there, okay? And so I'm of a mind to think rather than that word meaning cover, which is the Arabic root, the Arabic meaning, it's probably reflective of the Aramaic root, which means to remove. Okay, so, so I would say that there is a removal of the guilt that's attached to the sacrifices, but not in not in a in a redemptive sense, but rather a civil sense. Uh, okay, and they, they have the one goat that was uh, the scapegoat, I guess, yeah. that's supposed to take away the sins uh, yes. of the people. That yeah, it was removed into the wood. And again, that's part of the part of the language that's being used. They, they, it, it, would, it would be symbolically placed on the goat, and he would leave, symbolizing that the that the, the sin, the guilt, had been removed from the camp. So again, the removal idea is there rather than the covering idea. I see. Very good question. So, first function—that's that's the first function of the sacrifices. Number two, then. So this is not to say that the sacrifices had no relationship at all to redemption. Okay, As Hebrews 9.8 points out, the failure of the sacrifices to grant entry into the most holy place demonstrated to the Old Testament saint that there were limitations of the animal sacrifices. What does, what does uh, Hebrews 9.8 says? It says it would not grant them entry into the holy of holies, okay? into the most holy place. 
And so, you know, perhaps, you know, there'd be a, a man and a son, and they, they offer up their sacrifices, and the boy would point out, you know, can we go in to, to see God in the most holy place? And dad would say, no, 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 you can't do that. And the boy would say, well, why not? We, we offered a sacrifice. And he would say, yeah, yeah, but that's not something the sacrifice can do. And so that the sacrifice, there was always this reminder of the inherent limitations of the sacrifices being offered. They might make one right with the theocratic community, but they didn't grant entry into the presence of God. There had to be a greater sacrifice in order to make that happen. Okay, And so they were a reminder, a pointer to the fact that there was a need for something more to solve the, the greater problem uh, that, of, of, that the human condition faces here. So, that's, so there is something, I say here, a sense of a prefigurement uh, idea with the, with the sacrifices. These sacrifices, we, we know because of the way Christ died, that he is obviously mimicking the sacrificial system here and doing something greater that these sacrifices could not do. And, and so these, these were pointers, I think, to something that would happen that was greater. And so they were redemptive in that sense. They made people aware of the need for a greater sacrifice. And in that sense, it's, it's, it's much like what we've got with the rite of communion. When we, uh, when we take communion, what are we doing we are doing something symbolic as a memorial of what Christ did on the cross. We remember his broken body and his spilt blood. Now, it's not a literal sacrifice. Uh, I mean, there's no animals dying in, 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 in that ritual, but it has that effect, right? It's a, if I could put it this way, a postfigurement, a memorial of what Christ did. In the Old Testament, or maybe this point here, in the Old Testament, there was a prefigurement or a pointer towards what Christ would do. Now, again, the details weren't always, the, 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 the folks who were offering the sacrifices weren't privy to all the details, but I think they realized when they offered the sacrifices, there were inherent limitations to the sacrificial system that needed, to, to, uh, that needed a greater sacrifice. Now, looking at that, we say, could we have a sacrifice like that in the millennium, after the fact? And my answer is, sure, same reason, for the same reason we can have communion. It, it, it is a, something of a graphic memorial of what Christ has already done. Okay, so there would be no problem with those sacrifices uh, being, being offered in the millennium. Again, the, problem, the only problem you have with the sacrifices in the millennium is that if, in fact, they're saving people, that's a real problem. But they're not saving people. They never have. They couldn't in any age. Sacrifices can't save anyone. Okay? Yeah? Um, can you give us your thoughts? There's a, on the theory, I, I think it might be Schreiner, but I can't remember, that talks about that, you know, back during the theocracy, um, you know, God was actually dwelling among his people. And yeah. so... A, a huge part of the sacrifices was just to purify the community so, to a degree so God could even live among them. Right. But, and so in the future, when, when Jesus reigns from Jerusalem, the sacrifices will be, um, you know, in the same way to just kind of purify the community. It's not really a remembrance of his, of his sacrifice so much as it is this is necessary just for the land to be somewhat worthy of his very presence. Exactly. And, and, and he... He was supposed to be dwelling in their in their midst. The temple was the dwelling place of God. In fact, the Shekinah was there. This 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 cloud, um, and uh, it was there. And in order for the community to be right with each other and right with the King dwelling among them in Shekinah form. There had to be these sacrifices, but that was not the same thing as saying in order for them to be saved, they had to offer sacrifices. So you'd be comfortable with either of those or both, yes, as opposed both. to. Yeah, I would say both of those. In fact, there's a third function here that I would say there's actually three functions of the sacrifices, and so we'll move to the third. Yeah. David, in Psalm 51, yes. prays, 
Okay, and in other places, in other psalms, praise. Okay. The thing is, is, is almost seems like what you're saying is, or a, an effect of that is, it makes me kind of wonder how people could come into God's presence. Okay, the son asked the father a few minutes ago, asked the father, why can't we go in? Okay, and then when Christ died, the temple curtain was rent in two. Okay, David came into God's presence in a spiritual sense. Okay, he didn't have to be at the temple. He came into God's presence. So my question kind of is, how did the Old Testament saints, true Old Testament saints, people that were saved under the, in the Old Testament Mosaic Law, how did they come into God's presence then? Uh, how did they, if if they couldn't come into God's presence? Okay, that's a, that's actually the next point here. So we'll we'll okay. just because I have actually, in fact, you'll see Psalm 51 is right there in oh, the internet. Oh, I didn't. <laughs> so so yeah. Let's go through that point. See if I see if I answer it, and if I don't, bring it up again. I mean, it's kind of like prayer is coming into God's presence, but in the Old Testament, in a sense, you, you couldn't come into God's presence. Right. The only one was the the, the, the high priest once a year. Yeah, yeah. Right. And and there does seem to be some sort of a limitation on David's prayer life because he couldn't get into the... I mean, he's longing to get back to the temple because that's the way it was supposed to be done. At the same time, we recognize that he's calling out to God in the... In the I mean, that's it, it, the paradox. He says, I can't, I can't pray to you unless I'm in Jerusalem offering up the sacrifices, and yet that's what he's doing. He's actually coming before God and saying, please let me get back there. And I just so, want to throw out one thing yeah. real quick, I, mm -hmm. and I don't want to get off on this, but this is one reason that I got, having been down south in why I was so adamantly against the the traditional, when I say Southern Baptist, I'm not talking about Southern Baptist Convention, but the Independent Baptist down south. And their system of getting right with the Lord, you had to go forward. Right. And that whole idea, and I'm, I'm thinking, look, the curtain was rented. But you don't have to go forward. You don't have to be any place except where you are on the face of the earth to come into God's presence. True. You know what I mean? True. In a spiritual sense. But anyway, just yeah. I, just I mean, I, to throw I mean, that yeah. Out. I mean, there's a lot we could say about the about the invitation system. But I think really what it. <laughs> There, there's some bad theology attached to it, but I think there's also some good theology attached to it. One, one, it's it's a it's a call for a response, right? And then I think it's a call for a response within the Christian community. Um, it's not as though I, 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 now maybe there's some pastor somewhere who says you must come down or else it's fake. Uh, and well, maybe there is someone who out there who says that. I think for the most part, people say, okay, bring yourself to a point of decision, and 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 do it within the context. Of the people of God, and, and I can I can live with that. I mean, there, there's all kinds of abuses attached to the, the the invitation system, and I recognize all that. But I think, in general, most people are not thinking you have to do it this way, or it or it won't take. It's it's not real. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah don't, yeah, don't hear me making a an, a, 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 an apologetic for or against the uh, of the invitation system here, but I think there, I think we can we can we can at least give some some uh, a, 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 a some 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 credit to to those who use it at least. Okay, so the third, third function then of the sacrifices, I say, it's also observable that the offering of sacrifices were functional indicators of sanctification in the Old Testament economy. Without them, one's spiritual growth was inhibited, which is why David says, I need to get in to offer sacrifices because that's what I need to do. That's, that's a responsibility that I have as a believer. I need to offer sacrifices because that's what God requires of people who are right with God. And so he recognizes that his spiritual growth is stunted or inhibited to some degree if he can't go through the forms. 
In fact, the validity of one's very salvation could be cast into question. If I don't, if I, you know, if I'm a, if I'm an Old Testament saint living here and I never come in to offer sacrifices ever, then I think it would be right for people to say, "Is this guy really a believer?" If he never goes in to offer the sacrifices, it's the same question we ask today, right? You know, yeah, I'm I'm a Christian. Your neighbor says, and every Sunday he sits in his easy chair waiting for the NFL today to come on. You know, and and he never goes to church, and he never takes communion, and he and he never participates in the life of life of life of of of, of of believers, and so what? What we start to think? Well, okay, he says he's a Christian, but I don't see any indication that he's a Christian, and so we rightly call into question because I mean Hebrews says as much. If we forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, then we have no hope. And so it's not to say that going to church will save you. That's not the point. The point is not to say that going to church saves anyone. But someone who is saved will go to church, will want to be with the people of God. And if he doesn't get a chance to be among the people of God, there should be a yearning to be back among the people of God and going through the forms, singing and, and listening to the, the, the reading of the word. And, 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 and extending the right hand of fellowship on a, on a regular basis to the people of God. That's, that's normal. And if you don't have any interest in doing those things, at that point, your question is brought into, your, your salvation is brought into question. Okay? So again, just as these is true, these sacrifices are not necessary for salvation any more than, say, baptism is necessary for salvation in the present day. However, the sacrifices were part of the specific expression of sanctification in the Old Testament, and as such, they were necessary of salvation. Okay? A truly saved person would do these things. That is to say, no true Old Testament believer would neglect them. And then I give you a source that you can take a look at that. And if this is the case, the function of Old Testament sacrifices reflected here is fully compatible to their, with their reinstatement in the millennium. So we've got three functions of sacrifices that I think can be, that can be demonstrated in the scripture. One, to make one right with a the theocratic community. Secondly, to point to the, the greater sacrifice uh, that would be affected by the seed or Christ, and then also as a as a as a as a manifestation, as a concrete manifestation of sanctification within a specific dispensation. And I think all three of those could be reinstated. Not necessary that they be reinstated, but if those are the functions of sacrifices, I see no reason why they couldn't be reinstated in the millennium. So, any any thoughts on that? If you, if you read Ezekiel 40 and 48, they're, they're, they're offering sacrifices. There's the, there's the new temple that's, that's all measured out in great detail. And, it's, and, it's, and some, some would say, okay, well, that's just the post-exilic temple, that's Herod's temple. The problem is the measurements don't match up with it because there's, there's all kinds of measurements about the way it's going to be and when it's going to be and what's going to be sacrificed. Uh, What's the millennium? Well, it's it's going to be the millennium, so so things are going to be a bit different, yes. Um, but apparently, there's going to be a, a <laughs> acceptance of the of the idea of sacrifice. It doesn't seem possible in postmodern society, right? But uh, apparently, once I mean, once the millennium starts and Christ is ruling on the throne, things are going to be considerably different. So. <laughs> we post everything. Yeah. No ACLU and no PETA in the morning. <laughs> right. Okay. Again, that's probably one of the hardest things to that uh, that the reform folks have to to get past uh, in order to 
um, give any credence to, to dispensationalism. I, I, I found uniformly in conversation that that's one of the biggest stumbling blocks, the idea that the sacrifices could come back because the sacrifices are done in Christ and are completed in Christ. And so for us dispensationalists to say they come back is just bizarre, completely incompatible. Sin. It's going to be minimized, certainly. Uh, there is sin, but we do we do recognize that. And remember, we said that it's going to be restored to to near Edenic conditions, is the word I used. Right. Not, it's 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 not as though the fall has been completely reversed, but it does seem like many of the effects of the fall are at least mitigated. I mean, I mean, one of the effects of the fall is difficulty in growing crops, and we're told that one of the one of the benefits during the millennium is that you're not going to have much trouble growing crops. So it does seem like there's at least a mitigation of the fall, and there's the, there's the promise that there's going to be very little sickness. In fact, um, there's not going to be death, except for those who r resist the king. And so the, the death is going to be uh, almost done away with. And so, so it, would, it would argue then that illness is, is, is backed off considerably too. Which is why, again, again, that's the whole, remember we talked about that last time, which is why the post-millennialists built hospitals. That was one of the primary things that the post-millennialists thought it was necessary to do. In order to bring in the millennium, they had to heal sickness and, 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 and stop disease. And so they built hospitals. And that's why you have the Baptist Hospital and you have St. Joe's Hospital and you have you have all these all these hospitals that were constructed with church funds in order to bring in the millennium, because they they at least understood. I mean, the one thing I can say for the post-millennialists, they at least understood these the terms of the millennium in in, in, in a literal way. But this this is actually literally going to happen. Now they were I think completely confused with how how we're going to get there. But they, they understood that there was going to be that, that medical component, there's going to be a meteorological, there's going to be agricultural component to the millennium, and so they were, they were working hard uh, to bring those things in, into play. So yeah, those things will be true. Because all the people that are left during that time or on earth are the ones who never went in the rapture. So all, I mean, a lot of these people are unsaved. Well, the ones who enter the, the uh, millennium, remember there's the separation of sheep and the goats. And so the, the goats are actually sequestered and consigned to, to uh, hell. And so the only ones apparently that get into the, uh, the kingdom are believers, but they have kids. And so sin is not completely done away with, and they have kids because there's what? There's a rebellion at the end that has to be put down. So they're... So there's 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 there are unbelievers that accumulate during the course of the millennium, but at least it will start exclusively believers, and they will always be in the ascendants. So you mean babies, babies that are right. So when they grow up, they so Satan's bound for a thousand years. The question was, how can they be sin? They still have the human nature. Yeah, yeah they have, but there's, but there's, there are a lot of, there are a lot of points in their favor. I mean, Satan's consigned to, to the pit. Um, you've got Jesus on the throne, uh, enforcing justice. So they, they, I mean, the, the tips of justice are skilled, uh, are, are tipped. Uh, the scales of justice are tipped, so that uh, it's going to be a predominantly good place, but not entirely. So as a rebellion, are there going to be more non-believers than believers? It doesn't really say. I, I, I always get the idea that it's a smaller group, but I don't know. It, it doesn't, there's not enough data to say. Okay. Okay, so any, any more questions? I know, you're, you're answering questions among yourselves, so, which is fine. And I'm not, I'm not chiding anyone. <laughs> Okay, now you, you you look at this and say, okay, uh, next actually the next like six pages, all the way through, 
to, actually, all the way through to, well, for me it's 39, probably about 37 for you. Um, for sake of time, in order to uh, make sure we got through the whole course, I have actually woven uh, all of those pages into the discussion we've just had. So uh, we're actually skipping way ahead to Roman numeral chapter 6 at this point now. Dispensations and the Covenants, probably page 37. Okay, so 37 for you. Okay, so yeah, you're, you're free to read all the stuff in between there, but we've, we've, I've tried to weave that into the discussion that we've had over the last two weeks. So uh, we were actually making better time than it appears. <laughs> okay, so we're moving, unless there's additional questions. I still see some quizzical looks of... If we're, if we're ready to move on, we'll go to a discussion here of the covenants, which actually occur, for the most part, during major nodal points uh, between the dispensations, but not all of them. Okay, so we'll, we'll see if we can't, uh, I guess we'll, that'll, that'll help us if we keep our diagram up here. Uh, we'll be able to insert the covenants at their appropriate uh, time as well. But before we do that, let's at least introduce the idea of a covenant. Uh, the reason we have to do this is because there's a lot of debate about whether those, these covenants are temporary, whether they're eternal, whether they've been fulfilled, whether they've not been fulfilled, whether they've been cut off. And so we've got to establish what covenants are because they do follow the ancient Near Eastern pattern of covenants. So we sort of have to, and this, this is going to seem a little bit mundane and... Uh, I'm sorry about that, but it's, it's just the way it is. Because we're going to come back and refer to the information that we're going to talk about right here tonight. Okay? So promise that this will all become useful in time. Okay? So what is a, con what is a covenant? Well, the Hebrew term for covenant, bereath, is of uncertain origin. It could derive from any one of several Cadian words for bond, pledge, or between or it may simply be a noun form of the Hebrew word to cut. Okay, We're not sure, but they all actually sort of fit together to work. And the idea of cutting a covenant is the most familiar expression for a formal agreement used in the Old Testament. It's an expression that probably derives, this is a little bit gross here, from the practice of splitting the animals in two and walking between them in the formation of the agreement. Of course, you'll, you'll, you'll remember back to uh, Genesis 15, where, there is a where the sacrifice is made, and uh, God enters into covenant with Abraham, and what does Abraham have to do? He has to cut several animals in half and, and lay them out, and ordinarily, both parties of the covenant would walk between the animals, and the idea of these animals would be if I don't keep this covenant, may this happen to me. Okay, be split in two. Okay, of course, in Genesis 15, it's going to be significant that Abraham doesn't walk through, only God goes through in the form of a, of a smoking pot. Okay, and we'll come to that in a little bit here. But that was, a, that was the standard way of cutting a covenant. They would cut the animals in two and walk between them as they made their pledge to one another. Okay? There are basically three different types of covenants in the ancient Near East. The first is a parody covenant. I mention it only because for, for, uh, uh, for completion, uh, comprehensiveness sake, there really aren't any parody covenants in the Old Testament because the parody covenant could only be cut between equals. And so God would never enter into a parody uh, covenant with humans because he's not their equal. Okay? Uh, so by his very, very nature, he can't enter into such, such an agreement. So which brings us then to the two basic types of covenant that appear in the Old Testament. First is a promissory covenant, or sometimes called a royal grant. This is a unilateral, that is a one-sided, an unconditional obligation of a suzerain or ruler to a specific course of action on the behalf of his vassals. I'm using terms here that would have been appropriate to the ancient Near Eastern world. Okay, there is a ruler who makes an agreement on the behalf of the people under him. 
In this kind of covenant, only the suzerain would enter the agreement. This is reflected in the Noahic covenant, where God, as a symbol of the covenant, places unilaterally a rainbow in the sky. Well, Noah didn't contribute to that. Okay, God put that in the sky. The Abrahamic covenant, he's the only one that walked between. And then the Davidic covenant, which is basically uh, comes in the middle of the night to, to David, and he says, this is what's happened. Hope you like, I hope you like it, because that's, this is the way it's going to be. Uh, the, David doesn't really enter into this covenant. He just says, oh, oh, okay, okay, thanks. That's all, that's because that's all he can do. So those are, that's the promissory covenant or royal grant. Next we have the suzerainty covenant. Now, I say it's, it's an effectively unilateral imposition by a ruler to a course of action by his vassals. In this kind of covenant, the vassals were obliged under oath to agree to the terms of the treaty. Now, you have to, you have to realize here that most of these covenants that are made in the ancient Near East the suzerain, the ruler, had a lot of power, okay? And in some senses, they could enter into a covenant and break it at will. They had the power to do that. Uh, of course, God being a righteous suzerain would never do that, and so we have that, that difference uh, that goes into these covenants. Uh, but in this particular case, both the suzerain and the vassal would equally go into covenant uh, together. In most ancient Near Eastern suzerainty treaties, the suzerain's responsibilities, while occasionally delineated, were not truly obligatory. I use the example of, uh, you know, tell my son, okay, if you go out and mow the lawn, I'll give you $5. Okay, now if I were an unrighteous suzerain here, I really don't have to give him that $5. And if he came in and said, where's my $5? And particularly if he used some sort of an, an arrogant tone, I would say, you just forfeited it, <laughs> you know? Because, because that's, I mean, I'm the suzerain. I'm, I'm the boss. And even though I committed myself to a course of action, ultimately he's the only one that really has to do it, okay? Um, I can force him to mow the lawn. Otherwise, he, he's free to find a home somewhere else. Uh, but uh, but he can't force me to give him the five dollars. Okay, of course God is not like that, and this is where the biblical idea differs. While disobedient might result in the invocation of curses and the postponement of fulfillment, there could never be complete abrogation. The suzerain can never say, "Sorry, covenant's off." Okay, now he could say, "The kingdom has been taken away from this generation and given to another." Okay which is what we see, but he can't say, okay, no more kingdom. Kingdom's off. The land promises, off. Nobody, get, nobody gets the land. I, I'm, I'm sick and tired of you Israelites. No more land. No more country. No more seed. I'm, I'm sick and tired of this. I give, no. God doesn't do that because he is a righteous suzerain. Okay, so the suzerain here is bound, has bound himself to a course of action. This kind of covenant is reflected certainly in the Mosaic covenant, which is which is you know we, we find at least on two occasions. First at Mount Sinai, all of the people entered into agreement. They all said, "All the things that you say, we will obey." I don't know if they said it in unison quite like that, but but then also when they renew that covenant when they're going into the promised land. Some would call this a separate covenant, the, the Palestinian covenant. What do they do? They, they get on, on, on mountainsides and they call back and forth to each other, kind of like we are Penn State or something. Um, I'm a Penn State man. Probably none of you got that. That's fine. Um, but they, they, they called back and forth to one another and they, they, they affirmed to one another and to God that they were going to commit themselves to the terms of the covenant. Now, I'm going to argue t that the new covenant is of the same, uh, the same spirit as the Mosaic covenant. That's actually the, uh, the, the point that's probably the, the one that's under most contention. We'll get to that uh, when we get there probably next week. Now, I, I've been using this term conditionality, and we, we must recognize when we talk about a conditional covenant, with the, with the biblical covenants, 
the conditionality has to do with the entry into covenant. It's not the nature of the covenant as a whole. Okay? It's not as though if Abraham had fulfilled to live up to his end of the bargain, or if David had didn't fulfill and fulfill his end of the agreement, or if the people of Israel hadn't fulfilled their end of the agreement, that the covenant could be called off. Okay? It's not as though the conditions were to the completion of the covenant. Rather, it was the entry the entry of the covenant. In fact, once they're established, all of these covenants become, in effect, unconditional. It's not as though God can say, eh, that Abrahamic covenant, it, I talked about this seed and about the land and about the people, but I don't really like those terms. I'm just going to sort of scrap that and talk about the new heavens and the new earth and the people of God. That's, that's not a legitimate thing to do. He can't change the terms of the covenant, scrap the old covenant, and, and, and recast a new one. That's, that's not a legitimate way to treat a covenant. Okay? Because these covenants are conditional, in, uh, unconditional in the terms given. Okay? They, can't be, they can't be changed. In fact, it's, it's fairly important there. With a, in fact, I, I, uh, perhaps a, an illustration is in order here. We tend to think of the, these covenants as, as simple promises, but they're more than that, okay? Um, suppose I were to say to, I've got two sons, I told, tell my older son, Jonathan, hey, um, we're going to try and make an opening day, we're going to go watch the Tigers play, okay? So uh, put it on your date, clear up your calendar, we're going to go watch, going to watch the game. He said, oh, that's great. And so whatever day it is, I don't know well enough, but uh, probably some of you do, uh, sometime in the end of April. Um, baseball season starts, and we head down to head, get, head down to the car to get in, and uh, lo and behold, here comes David. He hops in the back seat. And Jonathan would say to me, um, uh, the promise was that you were going to take me to the, go to the ball game. And I would say, well, yeah, but... I'm, an, I'm a magnanimous fellow. I'm a generous fellow, and your brother can come along too. And really, you can't argue with me. I mean, I'm taking both of you. I, I didn't actually specify that to you. Uh, I just added another piece to the piece to the promise. And and I think all of us would say, yeah, that's that's my prerogative. I can I can choose to take both of my sons rather than just one. And see, oftentimes that's how the, the, the Reformed community sees the promise particularly to Abraham. Okay, The promise was made to Israel, but God decided, you know, I'm going to change the terms of that covenant by adding. I'm going to add the church, the New Testament church to that. The problem with that is it's not just a basic promise that's going in. This is this is a a, a covenant. If I can if I can if I can make the comparison, it would be more like a marriage covenant, where I make a commitment to my wife Heather to have and to hold in sickness and health for better or worse till death us do part. Amen. You may kiss the bride, and then coming along and saying, you know, I'm just a magnanimous fellow, a generous fellow. I want, to, I want to bring somebody else into the covenant as well. My wife would rightly say, um, wait a minute. You changed the terms of the covenant, and I do not like the new terms of the covenant, and I object, and she would be right to do so. Or perhaps we could talk about the last will and covenant, or last will and testament of a person. You know, my sons, David and John, I don't like to use all family illustrations, but it works here. You know, I die. And I say in my, in my uh, last will and test testament, everything goes to John. And my, and my younger son David is like, whoa, what happened? Um, I know my dad. He's a generous fellow. He would want me to have half of it. And what would the judge say? Sorry. <laughs> the, the will and covenant says it all goes to John. And so uh, there's nothing we can do. Because... 
that's the nature of a covenant, okay? And that's what we have here with these covenants in the Old Testament. We're not talking about just general promises. We're talking about covenants, which, which really becomes important then uh, when we talk about the specific covenants as we walk through them. Now, we're out of time here, so we won't be able to uh, uh, actually walk through the covenants next time. Hopefully, we'll, we'll get through uh, all six of Israel's covenants if, if, we, if we talk fast. <laughs> so, okay, any cool questions? I know it's sort of a setup for next time rather than anything really debatable at this point. Um, but uh, any questions as we cut out for the evening? Okay, we'll see you next week. <laughs>